0: We're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 257 is something like, are there some ideas that we're just born with and we don't have to learn them? And can these serve as a foundation for the rest of our knowledge? And we're reading book one of John Locke's, an essay concerning human understanding from 1689. For more information and link to the text, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, universally consented to in Madison, Wisconsin.
1: This is Seth Paskin, impossibly being and not being in Austin, Texas.
2: This is Wes Allwan interrogating children and idiots in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
3: <laughs> this is Dylan Casey, removing the rubbish from choking my storm drain in Middleton, Wisconsin. Hmm.
0: Man, oh man. Mr. Johnny Locke, we skipped this one. <laughs> Early on, we went straight from Plato, recollection theory of knowledge. There is stuff that we, when we're doing math problems, we just realize, I guess we knew this already. I guess even an uneducated slave boy in the Mino, for instance, can find that he has geometrical knowledge and skipped right to Hume, that the only thing we know is what we've experienced and we missed a few links. And since we've uh, covered Descartes in much more detail recently in the last year than we did at the very beginning of this podcast 11 years ago, this seemed like a good time to come back to a guy responding directly to Descartes, among many other people, and who, of course, then was hugely influential on David Hume.
3: Because of my own upbringing, I have never thought of John Locke as an epistemologist or as an epistemology guy. That probably says more about the gaps in my philosophical education and the fact that I know him from reading political philosophy. I couldn't help but think all the time when I was reading from the epistle onward about his political philosophy. What's lurking behind why he wants to understand this his anti-authoritarian attitudes.
2: Dylan, do we read this at St. John's? I know I've read some of it in philosophy.
0: Probably not this part.
2: Yeah, I took a survey course. Actually, when I was in high school, I enrolled in college just to take philosophy classes. So I know I read pieces of this there and I've read bits and like a few months ago, I was looking at stuff about primary and secondary qualities and I dipped into the book to see what he had to say about that, and it's really interesting, but we'll get to that in the next episode. But it's hard for me to now remember what I knew or didn't know about this book before I started reading some of the secondary sources that I've been looking at, but I think I was surprised by the first chapter's focus on innate ideas. So as we'll see, Locke is an anti-nativist. He doesn't like the theory that there is such a thing as innate ideas and spends all of book one arguing against that. That was a big surprise to me, as were the kinds of arguments involved, because they seemed pretty weak and straw mannish. So that surprised me. And that got me to get into some of the, the secondary literature. And, and of course, I found that, yes, he's commonly accused of kind of creating a straw man in this first book. But contemporary philosophy is a product of developments from these sort of ideas that are developed in this period that have to do with A kind of crisis in faith around epistemology, one that has something to do with the advent of modern science and the realization, for instance, that, hey, when I see color, it's particles of something bouncing off something else, and the color may not actually be out there, and those sorts of considerations. And so you get this epistemology of of ideas, which may or may not reify ideas in an unsavory way, but it's something that, of course, is taken up, and Locke's not the first, obviously, but this is kind of a pivotal moment. So all of this stuff gets taken up, and one of its natural consequences is idealism, and many of the developments. And you're saying that it leads to Kant. So, yeah. <laughs> but it leads also, you know, when people talk about social construction, that has its origins in the primary-secondary qualities distinction. The whole idea. I mean, yes, Kant sort of puts construction on the map, but it all starts here.
1: Whether I'm being brought back to my youthful roots or whether they're being thrust upon me, I'm not sure. But when we went to school, typically there was a class called the empiricists, Locke, Barkley, Hume, right? And the rationalists, Descartes, Kant, Leibniz. It was like a dodgeball game or a volleyball game. You know, you had the rationalist against the empiricists. And, you know, the enterprise was, who do you agree with? Do you agree? With the rationalists, or do you agree with the empiricists? And of course Locke has his political philosophy, which is also hugely influential. And but you know, I'm used to thinking about him in terms of this rationalist empiricist debate. But in rereading the text, I was struck by how from a as Wes alluded to, almost a quasi-scientific approach that, you know, ultimately what he's interested in doing is Justifying the foundation of knowledge, which is what Descartes wanted to do. But for the purposes of science, he wants to be able to say the truths that we somehow intuitively seem to know can be relied upon and not by virtue of some fiat of God or some innateness, which he's uncomfortable with. He's trying to basically do science. This is his way of grounding science, which is a project that we've seen time and time again. For these early modern thinkers, and so the good news is it's broken into lots of small sections and is very readable. But the sentences are very long, have <laughs> a lot of commas, and he's very repetitive. Yeah, very repetitive. Locke, Hume—they're very difficult people for me to read because, on the one hand, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, there's a whole host of scientific knowledge and conceptual development has happened that sort of negates some of the arguments and all that. And you realize they're struggling exercising their immense intellectual energy and talent in a structure and a confine that, you know, a third grader today would find ridiculous in some respects. But they were such amazing people. And such polymaths. I mean, Locke is just another one of those. It's not just political philosophy. It's not just philosophy. It's legal. You know, he dabbled in everything. And there's this explosion of intellectual energy and exploration at that time. It's hard to find an analogy or an analogous situation in history where you had that much energy being spent by so many brilliant people across so many different types of subjects. I'm infatuated to some extent with him and with the period that he was in. And at the same time, I find some of the stuff tedious to, to go through. It's I'm ambivalent, I guess is the word.
0: It's interesting that he's trying to ground science. There's not much discussion of that. I mean, there is a concern with the disputes of the schoolmen that is complained about by people in this era. We want to know what the limits, what knowledge, the understanding has by the, the basic ideas that we have and the certainty, evidence, and extent of it. This is part of his method in the introduction. And so if there are things that we really can't know anything about, then we should just shut up about them. He doesn't end up being like Hume, sort of ruling out religious talk, for instance, because the third part of his method here, I shall make some inquiry into the nature and grounds of faith or opinion, whereby I mean that assent which we give to any proposition or whose truth we have no certain knowledge, and here we shall have occasion to examine the reasons and degrees of assent. He has a pretty traditional or conservative, I don't know, for his time, but for us, a pretty traditional Christianity that he wants to ground here, you know, that's not really all that different from Leibniz in its broad outline. He wants morality to be something that we can figure out using our reason, which I just didn't remember any of that as part of this, right? I just remembered this fact I was calling this the inquiry rather than the essay because I was confusing it in my mind so closely. I was it with Hume who just lifted the tone. I think Hume, if anything, was more direct about it that if I remember correctly, he kind of just starts off his book like, yes, there are ideas in the mind and there are abstractions based on those or something like that. And that would be book two of this, where Locke gets very quickly into talking about the truth of perception, truth of reflection. Like those are the only places that we get ideas. And book one, the paper copy that I owned, highly abridged book one, like uh, almost half of it was gone. And it was really just a clearing away of these bad old thinkers, so now I can get to expressing my empiricism. But I think it is useful, this is to explain to the listener why we're going to spend a whole week here on book one. Well, because we plan to do multiple lock episodes. And in fact, we're going to put the second part of this one up for the public, and the second part of the next one up for the public, so that We can just keep going through the book, at least for the two episodes, and we'll kind of decide as we're recording the second whether we're going to go beyond that. I don't foresee us spending four months to get through this entire book, but at least given the tone, how sort of systematic and plotting he is, it seemed, okay, we just spent a lot of time waiting through 50 pages of book one. Are we going to just make that the first 10 minutes of our episode and then get right to the famous stuff? So Wes kind of saved the day here finding this Cambridge Companion to Locke's Essay Piece.
1: Rutledge Companion. There's two things. There were about a hundred (laughs) secondary.
0: I didn't read the Rutledge. I read Samuel C. Rickless's Locke's Polemic Against Nativism. Did you read something else,
1: Dylan? Excellent article.
2: So I also recommend the Rutledge Guidebook, which is by E. J. Lowe, who was a pretty well-known philosophy of mind guy, and he's a superb writer. I mean, I cannot recommend this highly enough, the Rutledge guidebook to Locke's essay concerning human understanding. But also, yeah, I thought you might, you guys might find this other essay pretty tedious, although it's introductory material is very helpful in understanding some of the background, right? Some of the stuff to which Locke is actually responding because it really is unclear. You know, there's this whole book on attacking people who are advocates of innate ideas. And I think we all understand vaguely. We know that Plato in a way is a nativist. We know that Descartes is, but there's a lot more background than that to it you know, and it's good to be reminded of what role Descartes plays. And then there's all these other people that Locke is essentially responding to that he doesn't think he mentions one guy by name. But for the most part, he's not mentioning people by name, and he's not really spelling out their arguments in any detail. So this other Cambridge, uh, Mark, did you want to say the name of that again?
0: It's Samuel C. Rickless, Locke's polemic against nativism. That's the one that I read that lays out here the three kinds of groups of people that he's responding to. I didn't even see clearly how he was responding to Descartes. The parts of Descartes that are quoted here are not from the text that we read that I recall.
2: So I was thinking we could say what he means by idea a little bit, and then what he means by innate idea. And then we can, as we discuss what an innate idea is, that kind of naturally brings up some of the background mentioned by this Cambridge companion essay.
1: I just want to make one editorial aside. The idea that this chapter could be dismissed as setting up a straw man, the idea that he would expend that much energy to demolish a straw man and that in the climate that he was in, that that would even be a meaningful thing. Just shows how uncharitable, uncharitable we are to history. Yes. It's fucking ridiculous that anybody would even accuse him of something like that.
0: I've started using the term shit man instead of straw man, when it's not like there's nobody that believes this. It's just that it's such a poor view that like, why would you waste time arguing against this? So that I feel like Sam Harris responding to the most devout religious people like, well, I wouldn't consider those people philosophically sophisticated. So what's the point in responding to them other than as a political point is philosophically, it's not interesting, but obviously it just depends what part of history you're in.
3: I sort of wonder as we go through it, if that, what the charitable reading of it's going to be, are we going to just jump into book one, are we going to say more about the epistle and
2: about like how he's thinking about his job?
0: Well, Wes wanted to say what an idea was. It seems like he doesn't actually get around to telling us.
2: He does have a definition in section eight of book one. So it's maybe not all that helpful. Maybe we don't need to say much about this until later episodes, but section eight, he will say an idea stands for quote, whatsoever is the object of the understanding when a man thinks I have used it to express whatever is meant by phantasm, notion, species, or whatever it is, (laughs) which the mind can be employed about in thinking, and I could not avoid frequently using it. What he's trying to say is that this word idea is the most generic possible way of describing the objects of our thoughts. And, you know, as we'll find out later, it can mean concepts or it can mean perceptions. It might mean what we mean, what we call qualia today, or these subjective sensory experience of the outer world. But it's an interesting formulation because it makes it sound as if he's setting up this kind of intermediate, it sounds like he's reifying ideas in a sense, right? So he's setting up this intermediate mind world, and it almost sounds like he's creating an analogy to perception that goes on within the mind so instead of for instance our usual talk about perceiving an object it sounds like what i perceive is perhaps and this is something locke is frequently criticized for and perhaps unfairly i think we'll find that out as we go along but it sounds like the object of the perception becomes the idea itself and we get this what's been called a veil of perception that stands between us and the world. So, what we get immediately in this idea is a challenge to naive realism. I think the use of the word idea carries a lot with it. When
3: I read this idea, I'm pretty sure I understood it along the lines which you're describing, Wes. But to me, it's incredibly imprecise, except in so far as the activity of thinking is working on ideas. And so, if that leads to the notion of a veil of perception that whatever we perceive in some kind of raw way, whatever that means, is then transformed into ideas that we actually do thinking on, then that sounds like that's what he means. I have a completely separate set of questions about how you could possibly do anything different. It just seems utterly unobjectionable that the activity of our thinking is using something and those things, I'm just going to call those ideas. I'm going to be deeply imprecise about that. And I'm going to conflate all kinds of things like concepts versus abstract versus particulars, all that. I'm just going to call them
0: all ideas. And I'm not sure that he made that up. I think that this is kind of common parlance. We'd have to look at Descartes more closely. You know, does he have a similar idea? But that was my sense. And the reason it sounds so weird to us is because of the subsequent objections to that, that essentially he's performing some kind of mental atomism. The idea is kind of the basic unit of thought, you might have an idea that then you analyze. This doesn't happen in this book. This this happens a little in this book, actually, where he considers like the notion that God should always be worshipped or something. And so, you know, one of his opponents has said that is just something that it just comes. It's an innate idea. It's built into us. And he said, "Well, look, that clearly is made up of two ideas: the idea of God, the idea of worship." So, right there, you got a complex idea made of simple ideas. It seems like it just follows from grammar, <laughs> but you might want to say. Like Wittgenstein, you know, we did our Tractatus episode. No, actually, the basic unit is the proposition, is actually the joining of those two things. There is no considering the merely the subject by itself. And I think Locke gets, as we get into this book, as he drills down, he is troubled by these things. So we are going to talk about basically do metaphysics, eventually, in this book, where he's considering the relationship between a substance and all the various properties that it holds. Am I wrong that he's the guy who—actually, I don't know where he—I know Barclay, when we covered that he very much disbelieved that there is some sort of basic substance that then has all the properties. Like, no, the complex thing is just a bundle of properties, because it's just—that's what we experience. That's Hume. Okay.
2: So— we're ahead of ourselves.
0: <laughs> Locke does bring up the idea, because part of this, when he's trying to figure out, of all these different ideas that we're talking about, which ones do we think are innate? So some past thinkers said, put forward the idea of substance as one of them. And he doesn't dwell on it here, but he says, I don't even know what the hell you're talking about, substance. When I experience something, I experience its greenness and its roundness and w- its squishiness or whatever properties that it has. The idea of the substance that has all these things, like, I don't even know what the hell that is.
1: How did you get to substance?
0: It's just one of the things he brought up. Wes was talking about ideas.
1: What he brings up at the point that Wes mentioned is he's just, I'm going to use this word idea. It can mean a lot of different things. I think you understand what I mean when I'm talking about it. My real question, our first inquiry then shall be how they come into the mind. So there's some kind of activity in our mind and that activity is directed towards something. I'm going to call it an idea. I think we can all universally agree. The question is, how do we get ideas? That's basically it, right? That strikes me as unobjectionable, as Dylan said.
0: That that is the goal, the first part of the inquiry. And then once he figures out, just paying attention to our experience, how he thinks we get ideas, then he's going to jump and actually rule some of them out to say, given how we get ideas, some of these things these philosophers talk about, did you get these ideas that way? No, I guess they're not legitimate ideas.
2: Should we move on to what it is innate ideas are and why people are motivated to think that there are such things as, as innate ideas? So,
1: Dylan, did you want to talk about the preface? We can do it however you want. I mean, he, he lays out
3: some interesting things in the epistle and in the introduction, I think, just about what his goals are and why he's doing it. But maybe that's just all sort of pro forma stuff from early modern folks, you know,
2: Well, I think some of this will come out of the discussion of what innate ideas are. If we get into some of this background that we were given to in the Cambridge essay, one of the motivations for saying that there are innate ideas, it's something we're familiar with from Hume, which is the idea that there are some things that cannot come in through the senses. So for Hume, causality is not something that can come in through the senses. You get perceptions, right? The sensory data, but there's nothing... There's no organ on the body that can somehow take that in. So that's one motivation. It's worth saying that when we talk about innate ideas, we're dealing with two different types. So one of them theoretical, one of them practical. We're on the sort of theoretical bent right now. Well,
3: I just wanted to make a practical question or a practical point because the section, the chapter is, at least chapter two, is no innate principles in the mind as opposed to no innate ideas. And given that he said that, like, I mean, this is like two paragraphs later, I took that to mean principles as at least ideas as the sort of general amorphous class of things that are the contents on which thinking happens. And principles are one of those things. So in some sense, principles are an example of ideas, very roughly. That's the way I was interpreting
2: it. It's a little confusing because he will later say that Propositions are made up of ideas and and just the way we might expect. But for the sake of this chapter, it's an argument against innate ideas, but really it's an argument against innate principles, which of course are built up of supposedly innate ideas. So, for instance, an innate idea, for example, is just the idea of God. That's a possible innate idea. One of the theories is that our soul is kind of stamped with these things. We have the idea of God built into us by God for various reasons, but a principle. might be that by being virtuous, we worship God. So, we get principles in propositional form. Or another practical principle would be, you know, the golden rule, do unto others as we would have done unto us. But there's a large set of candidates for this, right, that take the form either of just ideas or propositions or principles. So, the law of non-contradiction for instance, which is the one that Locke will use the most in here. That's an example of what was thought to be an innate idea. The whole is greater than the part, certain mathematical principles.
3: Well, all the common notions from Euclid, right? I mean, he doesn't mention them, but those like leap out as the ones that they would all know. The angles
2: of a triangle totaling to 180 degrees, which is something that he does mention. And then even the fact that we can do schematization when we do proofs, right? So the idea that we could prove something about a particular triangle in a diagram and know that that applies to all triangles of that type that capacity for to schematize in that way was also argued by some people to be require innate ideas of perfect triangles for instance and then there are relative notions and this comes up in plato as well like what do you do with likeness or unlikeness for instance that's another thing that seems like it can't come in through the senses these kind of formal relationships between things that the senses can't do directly. So it seems like some of this stuff must come from the mind. So cause and effect, similarity, equality, symmetry, all that stuff that later on Kant will say are the categories by which we construct the world. These are all candidates. These are all the types of things that people have been talking about that Locke is responding to.
3: It seems like saying that they come in through the senses, it's going to have to be an account of how you build it up out of experience and the difference between something being a innate capacity versus an innate principle. When I started trying to figure out what the difference between those two things, it seems like there's a wedge that they come into, right? Or maybe it's just a blending where at some point, one person's capacity ends up becoming another person's principle. Because the principle and the mind becomes the manifestation in concrete form of the capacity,
0: yeah, it is a very weird picture of the mind, just based on what we've said about ideas so far that we're going to have to get into when we get to book two next time. But people are probably familiar with the idea of tabula rasa as opposed to there being innate ideas. There's just a blank slate. So when you're talking about Dylan, the difference between having an idea and having a capacity, that's something that's very important to Locke because his view of the mind is it was really weird when we did Sartre and he had such a problem with conceiving the unconscious as Freud thought of it and just thought like by definition it couldn't exist. Well, that kind of prejudice is right here because it's really like the mind is just this container, this slate, this one piece of paper that stuff could be written on if you're actually thinking about it now. And then when you stop thinking about it, it's gone. It's blank again. You know, he's going to have a lot to say about memory. But memory is not going to be like another part of the mind that's like the part that we're conscious of. That's like, well, when I'm not thinking about Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln is still back in a different part of my mind, in the unconscious part, being just the way he was when I was thinking about him. Like, no, it's just gone. But we have the capacity to revive that idea. We've heard about him. We've seen a picture and we can revive that. So it's a very like overly simple picture of what the mind is. And clearly, there's a lot of stuff that the brain does that he's not going to consider part of the mind. He's actually not that interested in how the mind and the brain come together, the thing that was the big problem for Descartes. He is more like a phenomenologist than I expected, that he's really just, what are we actually experiencing? And anything else that the mind can do, well, that's kind of like... I don't know, go do some brain science or something. I'm talking about the mind, and we can all just reflect on our experience, and this is what we see, these ideas and how they're logically related to each other in experience.
3: This does make me want to bring up a little bit about why he's doing this, and so the context for it, so it reminds me of this notion of hunting for the truth. I think you're right, Mark, that there's something that feels remarkably draft quality. There's a lot of sort of simple things he's thinking through, or that feel like they're simple. But he's clearly in this situation where, look, we have to start talking about how we think about things in order to make sure that we can make progress in hunting for what is really true in the world. So this reminds me of someone like Descartes, for instance, you know, the whole rules for regulation of the mind and how we're going to get certainty and how we're going to know things in the world. And he says... For the understanding, like the eye judging of objects only by its own sight, cannot but be pleased with what it discovers, having less regret for what has escaped it because it is unknown. Thus he who has raised himself above the alms-basket and not content to live lazily on scraps of begged opinions sets his own thoughts at work to find and follow truth will not miss the hunter's satisfaction. Every moment of his pursuit will reward his pains with some delight, and he will have reason to think, his time not ill-spent, even when he cannot much boast of any great acquisition. From the beginning, he's talking about this activity that we have, that we are hunting for true things. And if anything, that's the kind of thing that one would think that drive is innate, right? Just like, you know, at the beginning of, I think it's the ethics, Aristotle, everyone reaches out to know Locke seems to be in that same position. And then probably the thing in the secondary literature that I read most quoted was this quote about being ambitious enough to be employed as an underlaborer and clearing the ground a little, where he's trying to lay the groundwork or clear the ground a little for Huygens and Newton and other people to do the work that they do. That's the link with science, you know, and trying to justify science.
0: So, of course, we all are born knowing how to breathe, for instance. We don't have to, like, watch somebody, watch your parents. And then figure out how to breathe. So, of course, there's inborn something, but not ideas, not principles, not things actually in the mind. Those would be in the body somehow, capacities.
1: I'd like to circle back without getting into a discussion about propositions versus simple ideas at this point yet, but just he's trying to say there are things that are generalizations, it's not abstract. It's just there are statements or principles that we perceive to be universally true, and we perceive them to be universally true in a way that suggests the awareness of their truth must result from them being somehow ingrained in you as opposed to brought from experience. So, X is not Y, right? Red is not blue, green is not yellow, dogs are not cats. We could just continually to infinitely go through examples, but the abstract idea of A is not B, or A and not A are not the same thing, You know, however you want to say it, which he says, and which I think the other people are arguing, is it's something that you may not have thought about it, but when it's presented to you, it's obvious. You may have had experiences of this, that, and the other thing, but when you're presented with a generalized maxim that articulates... A variety of your experiences and you go, yeah, oh yeah, of course. Then the question becomes, how is it that's so obvious that it's true to you and that you can accept it? I thought you were going to go a little bit
3: different than that, Seth. So I like that. How do you know that it's so obvious? Like, How is it that that's clear and distinct for you? But I thought that you were also going to go to, there's some capacity that I know difference, but I don't think of it as knowing difference. What is it that I tell this from that? Cats are not dogs, those kinds of things. Or, as Wes was bringing up, likeness, that this is like that. What I thought you were going to go to is that 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 is somehow an innate capacity that we have. But it's not yet a principle and that there's a step to be made to say that two things cannot be alike in exactly the same way and be different from one another or the law of non-contradiction, is an extrapolation. Locke, I think, says at the very least that if I take that information of dogs are not cats, my experience with the world of distinction between this and that, that that is somehow raw experience. And then I have an action that happens that allows me to then extrapolate the law of non-contradiction, that that is not an innate idea. That is a built or constructed idea. That I can see as informing all kinds of other things as maybe being true. Well, I guess we have to talk about the way he thinks that's going to be true.
2: Seth, you jump to the very beginning of his argument, where he's arguing against the common view is that because some things are universally assented to, whether it's speculative principles or practical principles, whether it's the law of non contradiction or the golden rule, then they must have an innate origin. And that's going to be the thing he argues against. And then Dylan, what you're getting at and what Mark has already mentioned, which is a deeper part of this conversation, which you guys are already articulating is the difference between having explicit knowledge that you can state and then having procedural knowledge that you act on, that you know tacitly and that you act on. So like know how versus know that. So I know how to play tennis. I may not be able to put all the principles into words, but I know how to do it. And in the same way, I may know how to behave in the world as if the law of non-contradiction were true, but that doesn't mean I can explicitly state the law of non-contradiction. So if I'm a child, you know, of course I'm not going to be, what are you talking about? The same thing can't be and not be in the same respect at the same time. I don't know what you're talking about. They have to get older before they're going to understand something like that. But you can see in the way they behave in the world, right, that they embrace the law of non-contradiction. So they would never, for instance, try to do what they've gotten split brain people to do in experiments, which is to try to do two opposite things at once because one side of the brain doesn't know what the other side is doing. A child, of course, assumes that it can't do two opposite things at once. It seems bizarre when you state it, but yeah, that's implicit in our behavior. We know not to do something that stupid. But anyway. That also gets us towards the difference between a capacity and being able to have principles that we can state. Because it seems like in the end, what Locke is going to want to say is that there is something innate. It's just that he wants to make it a very broad capacity for abstraction, for instance. And then we can use that based on experience to develop more specific capacities for one thing, but then also to be able to state the implicit principles on which those capacities operate, state them and assent to them as explicit truths. But he doesn't go much into that sort of thing in this argument. That's kind of our evaluation.
0: I found it instructive how I think Seth was fumbling with what is the general proposition from the examples he gives. White is not black. A square is not a circle. Yellowness is not sweetness. These are all the things, the concrete things of experience that we learn. And what is the general truth from that? And he says it's the law of non-contradiction. But the fact that You know, a square is not a circle. That's not the law of non-contradiction. It's actually an interesting reconceptualization. Like Dylan or Seth was saying something like Leibniz's law, like something can't be exactly the same as something else and also be different. Like these are getting to the law of non-contradiction from concrete things in the world is actually pretty difficult. I mean, other than like it's easier when you're talking about propositions rather than ideas because like it's raining and it's not raining at the same time. Like, okay, that is the classic. The cat is on the mat. The cat is not on the mat. Those are the the examples that we give. But if you actually try to put it in terms of just ideas, yellowness and blackness or something like that, it's kind of difficult.
2: So I think part of what's confusing here, yeah, I'm not sure if Locke is giving bad examples of the law of non-contradiction or if he's thinking of something else to which he's just not explicitly telling us because he is responding to people who will say these relative notions like likeness and unlikeness are things that we can't sense, right? Which makes sense. Like if you're very literal minded about this, the certain relative formal qualities of objects, it's hard to conceive of how they would come into the mind from the outside world and so you think of it as coming from inside and then the question is whether you define that as a kind of discriminatory right capacity or if you say okay there are these innate ideas of their concepts let's say likeness and unlikeness and then i have to apply them
3: i guess i'm completely confused about the notion that things being different from one another it's difficult to understand how that comes into us from someplace outside
0: Locke thinks it's obvious that it obviously does come from us from outside, that a child looks and, you know, dog and cat and sees these are different. He doesn't think of the generalization. He knows a lot of individual different things, but to think...
2: What sensory organ is geared towards likeness or unlikeness? Your
0: nose. It's the abstraction.
2: What comes in through the nose are smells, right? And then we have to do something to be able to Say that one smell, for instance, is unlike the other, and that involves a lot of complicated cognitive operations. I completely disagree with that. Well, for one thing, it involves memory, right? There's no way to actually compare two things unless you have memory. So that's one complex cognitive capacity. And we could list a lot of others. The way someone might compare and get a difference between two sensory experiences and we know you know a lot happens in the brain for this to happen right it's not just that it comes in through the nose
3: i'm not disagreeing that a lot happens in the brain what i'm saying is is that our very cells and the very atoms in our body tell the difference between this and that and the way atoms connect to one another the way in which our individual cells let some atoms in and some atoms out they tell the difference between this is not like this, this is not like that. Now, likeness, I think, is a higher thing. But to know that this is not the same as that?
2: Well, the idea is these are formal relational things that don't come in through the body.
1: What are the other examples he gives, which I think is a little more powerful, and I can relate an anecdote here, is he says, the same thing cannot be in two different places at the same time. And one of the things I love about the early moderns is that their arguments are such that I can try them out on my wife and my friends who are not philosophically sophisticated, let's say, or maybe philosophically ingrained. So the question I posed to my wife was, let's say you saw two identical twins standing side by side. Would you think that you were seeing the same thing in two different places or would you think you're seeing two different things?
0: If you're saying a, a person and then their mirrored reflection, but you couldn't see the mirror. No, no.
1: I'm saying like, I was talking about if she was like, two physical identical. I'm not talking about a mirror concept, but I just, my question was, is it possible for her to conceive that she would be seeing the same thing in two different places? Like, would that even cross her mind?
0: Most identical twins are actually time travelers that have just come back.
1: And of course she said, no, obviously if I saw two identical things in two different places. The first thing she would go to would be to assume they're different and then try to figure out why they look, you know, like, in other words, you automatically assume difference with physical separation. And so I was like, why do you know that or why do you believe that? And she's like, I have no idea. And I think that that's part of what Locke is getting to is this is the problem statement, if you will, that Locke and the people he's responding to have is there's a certainty about that knowledge and there are nuances about whether you're aware that you know it or not, that Locke gets into, whether that even makes sense or not. But there's certain propositional content in your mind. And maybe now I'm talking myself into what you guys were talking about earlier. Maybe we're just talking about capacity. You know,
2: Seth, you're still talking about likeness in a a sense, a variation on likeness and unlikeness, which I think is a good example because it you know, a lot of this stuff has to do with the concept of a relative notion than the idea that it can't come in through the senses. So just try to think about this in a very concrete way about the way an early modern is thinking about perception, right? They're thinking about, and in terms of a corpuscular theory, they're thinking of the world mechanically, and they're thinking of seeing an object, for instance, as involving particles bouncing off the object and coming into the eyes. And, the eyes having the capacity to be in a f- affected in a certain way by them. And so suppose I take two similar people, let's say, or I could give a simpler example of uh, two similar objects of some sort. I can imagine light hitting one object and coming in through the eyes. I can imagine light hitting the other object and coming in through the eyes. But what never happens is that the likeness, the fact that they are like each other, that light bounces off some entity out there called likeness, and then comes in through the eyes. What instead has to happen is there's a bunch of complicated cognitive stuff. It has to happen. It involves the memory. It involves synthesis. It involves imagination. Any number of different faculties that has to act on that raw data before I can say they're alike or unlike. Now, of course, as we know once we've become Kantians or modern cognitive scientists, we, we would say that even about seeing the object, right? We would say, okay, well, the, the brain has to do a lot of work even to turn the light that's coming into the eyes into something that we would call an object. All sorts of categories are in operation. So Kant would say, you know, unity is an operation, causality, uh, spatiality, temporality, Suppose we grant that stuff. There's all the stuff that goes on in the mind. Then the question is, do we formulate those things as capacities, as faculties in the way that Kant does? Or do we want to call them concepts that we apply? Do I have an innate cognitive capacity to tell when one thing is like another and not like another? Yeah, sure. Does that mean there are innate ideas? Does that mean there's some sort of innate content well, maybe. Am I applying the concept of unlikeness? And the reason why people want to say maybe is because there are these mathematical principles, right, which don't seem to be provable from experience, right? When I prove that the angles of a triangle are equal to 180 degrees, there's an a priori quality to that proof. I don't prove it through observation of the world. Something else seems to be going on. So there's a lot of mixed up stuff going on here, but there are reasons why people want to think in terms not just of capacity, but in terms of axioms, in terms of principles like the golden rule, in terms of concepts of likeness and the likeness. So whether that's legitimate or illegitimate, I think it helps to know what the motivation there is.
3: Isn't the advantage of the axioms and the principles is that they can be operationalized. You can chain them together. Whereas if it's a capacity, it acts on something, but it isn't operationalized. So you could do a proof with axioms involving principles. The best you could do is say, well, I have the capacity to do
2: proofs or to understand them. It doesn't truly become a silence until I start formalizing this stuff, right? So I may have spatial intuition. That's great. But I don't get geometry until I start explicitly stating these things in propositional form and then doing work on them.
3: I grant that there's a lot of stuff that the mind does, but I'm still stuck on this idea that there isn't something fundamentally deeper and physical about difference and even our perception of difference. So another example comes to my mind is I have two buckets of water and I stick both my hands in it and I make the judgment that one is colder than the other. One bucket of water is different temperature than the other. If I follow what you're saying, Wes, as you're saying, look, it's going to be a very complicated process for us taking whatever those raw signals are and then making the distinction between saying, oh, that one's a different temperature than the other. And that part's just not clear to me that it's that complicated,
2: right? Well, it doesn't have to even have to be complicated as long as we admit that there's something innate about that, right? That as long as we admit that there's no organ of receptivity to difference per se. They're just organs that are receptive to the sense data. And then there's something in the mind that has the capacity to compare those sense data.
3: So that amounts to saying that the brain is acting like a processing unit. I won't call it a computer, a processing unit that can take signals. But the only way that I can talk about relational, this is why you use the word relational, the only way I could talk about comparatives at all is I have to have an operation on inputs in order to come up with an output. And whatever that, op- that operation, that's mind or brain or whatever, and that is not another sensory object.
0: Exactly. Okay. I think the reason, again, why Locke and Descartes and other folks at this time are so foreign to us is because we are used to thinking in these sort of computer terms. You are talking about a black box and there being input and output. For Locke, when he's talking about the mind, he is only talking about the screen. And he thinks that we can do epistemology, we can do a philosophy of mind, again, using this analogy, what's showing on the computer screen, just the things that are being typed in by the world, by the senses, and then the things that are coming out. And in fact, that there's an apparent logic that we can sort of delve into without going behind the screen, without looking inside the computer without looking at the underlying programming. Like if you came across a computer and you didn't know how it worked and you decided, I'm going to discover how computers work, but I can't look inside and I can't know anything about programming, you'd just say, that's hopeless. You're not doing something that will succeed. Well, I think that has been the verdict of history on this kind of doing philosophy is that no, you actually have to look behind the screen and bring in brain science or something here. But if we want to take this text seriously and both Locke's position and the people he's arguing against, we kind of have to try to play his game and make it resist both Dylan's urge to say the discrimination that I have in yellow versus black is just like the discrimination a cell has in deciding what it's going to let through its membrane. Like it completely makes sense, but I don't think that's part of Locke's game at all. That it's just one involves consciousness, one doesn't. They have to be different things. And likewise, When Wes keeps wanting to edge toward Kant, even though Kant has the notion of like a concept, it's not merely, you know, something in the brain. We'll actually be able to draw it as like a flow chart. We can give a sort of technical first the, you know, the I'm just about to you know recreate the kind of explanation that Kant gives. But folks can go listen to our episode on that. That, too, I think, is not playing Locke's game where all you have is just the tabula that is either Rasa or it has an idea in it. And that's it.
2: Okay. We're talking about the people he's responding to, right? We're trying to grasp what the nativists think, not what Locke's response to it is so far. So, And these are the arguments that the nativists have. If you read that Cambridge Companion essay, it gives you all the background on the types of things that people are claiming are innate ideas, these relative notions and, and all the rest of it. So that's all I was trying to do. I was trying to help people wrap their heads around the idea to which he is responding.
0: And sorry, what's that distinction that the secondary source makes between the two kinds of naticism, the the implicit and articulated, something like that?
2: The current and dispositional. So that's another step in the argument, but go ahead.
0: The reason everybody thinks that Locke is arguing against a straw man is because any sophisticated version of innateness allows for dispositions, which very rapidly go into this knowledge how. Hobbes was an anti-nativist.
2: Right. So he said there's no innate ideas because innate ideas would always have to be present to the consciousness. And when people sleep, there are periods where you have no consciousness. Hobbes is assuming his opponents advocate a simple non-dispositional nativism, but Descartes came and replied to that. And he gave an account, which is now referred to as dispositional nativism, which is to say that, To have an innate idea doesn't mean it's active all the time. It doesn't mean it's being attended to or in our consciousness all the time. It just means that it can be summoned up when necessary or under certain circumstances. So sure, we might have to have certain sense data or certain types of experiences before the innate idea even occurs to us. But the idea is that it's there and you could say it's in the memory if you like. If you use the word memory broadly, Locke would say, nope, you're wrong about that. So it's elicited. So you can have these dormant, non-active, innate ideas for the dispositional
0: nativist. He has some arguments in here against that more sophisticated dispositional nativism, but most of it are like Hobbes against a current nativism, against the idea that if you have knowledge you must know that you have that knowledge, right? So it sort of rules out in advance Plato's model of innate ideas that you then remember. Somebody has to, like in the Mino, guide you through doing the geometry exercise, and then you realize that you had this knowledge all along. That is something that I don't think Locke explicitly considers, which is weird. Of course, of course he read the Mino.
2: Well, he does when he talks about memory. So he says, towards the end of our reading, at section 20 of chapter 4 where he'll say the innate idea is you can't say they're hiding in the memory because memories are something which they involve things which have been conscious at some point. And when you remember them, they have the mark of repetition, right? You know that it's not a new, there's something there to distinguish it from just having a new perception. The memory says, okay, this is not an active perception, but it's something that's been perceived before and I'm calling it. So the the memory has a little metadata, let's call it, that tells us that it's a memory. This is a very weak argument on his part, but he doesn't like the idea of
0: the memory as a as a way up. He's trying to reduce the sophisticated dispositional nativist back to being an occurrent nativist. Ultimately, if you're going to be a nativist at all, you have to believe that these supposed innate ideas were things that are now or were at some point explicitly in your consciousness, and you were aware that you knew that thing and believed it.
2: That's a good point. But except that, you know, most of the arguments about universal ascent, right, they apply just as to either form of nativism.
0: And let's get to universal ascent in part two. Next week, come back or become a partially examined life citizen and get it right now. And no, we are not throwing out the practice of hiding part two, but we're suspending it for these lock episodes because we think it's important that people get the through line and we didn't want to have to shove everything into part one and make part two about the details. We're just going to keep going through the book. See ya. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty.